Hi there. Welcome to another episode of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship guide and coach, and I'm the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my services or about the podcast, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We'd also really love your feedback, which you can provide by going to the BertScholl.com contact page and filling out the form. Please do. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at But Seriously The Cancer Podcast and on Twitter at But Seriously TCP. And make sure you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash But Seriously The Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Hey, Leslie. Hey, how are you? I'm great. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. Nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. I'm so glad we connected. Oh, yeah, Instagram's a phenomenal way to meet people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's wonderful. I love how we find our communities and then get to support one another and get supported by people, right? And occasionally someone will post something and I'll just stop in my tracks. Like, you bet. Or, or, or I'll hear something that I'm like, Thank you so much for saying that. I just recently saw a post where a fellow survivor, she said, you know, when someone's treatment is over, like, basically she's like, reach out to them because this is one of the hardest times. And I was just like, thank you because, I mean, heck, that's the work that you do. And that's what's so, that's what inspired me when I became a coach as well. For all of you that are listening, Leslie's a coach. Tell everybody what you do. So I work with people who have completed treatment for any cancer, who are struggling with their new reality. Yeah. Um, which is I, I, something most people don't know even exists. You know, I recently had a conversation with my father while we were talking about my niche with my parents. And my dad's like, who's not okay after treatment? <laughs> Perfect. Dad. That communicates everything. Sorry, go ahead. And you, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. I said, you know, I said, dad, I love you to death, but you thank God don't have a clue. And I didn't have a clue. Even while I was in it, I didn't know what it was. Because once you finish treatment, you're sort of just untethered. Yeah. So I struggled for two years after. And it was really miserable. And there are no resources. Well, I shouldn't say there are no resources. There are resources, but you have to know about them. You, uh, like, you have to know that you are in need of the resource. Yeah. Right? Right. It's like, it's like someone who, a uh, buddy of mine who... Um, quit drinking because he was like he didn't realize he needed to quit until he found himself in a place where he was like oh my goodness look what I'm drinking every week like I gotta stop doing this I'm in trouble like that's where we find ourselves oh yay you ring the bell hallelujah I am done and then slowly it slowly arises like a lobster being cooked in a pot and you don't know you're cooking until the water's way too hot, right? And no one around you knows what's happening. 
you know, they think, you know, I happen to be uh, very, um, <laughs> I guess, not needy person. Uh, it's always been hard for me to ask for what I, you know, if I need help. So, you know, to my family, to my friends, it looked like I was, okay, dinner was on the table. So what if I was sitting on the couch till a half an hour before somebody came home for dinner? I was getting dinner on the table. I was getting groceries. But I, I was not functioning on any level of okay. And I can so relate to that because I learned to ask for help during my first diagnosis. And I'll say that why I learned is because I was, is because I had gone through a like transformational weekend course <clears throat> and then done a couple more courses and then did like a six month rigorous boot camp of like, you know, dealing with all of the self-talk, all the automatic thinking that we respond to and, and act like it's actually us, right? So I got highly trained in noticing my thinking and I saw that I was confronted, deeply confronted by asking for help and my wife was like, uh, we can't do this. We had, you know, my son was four, month old, four months old when wow. I was diagnosed. My stepson was nine. I mean, you know, my How old wife, you? I was 36. I was three weeks away from being 37. And how old were you? So tell everybody what you were diagnosed with. And okay, how old so you here, I'll tell you how it went. So I, I have five children. Um, at the time, my youngest, I guess, was 14. And I had not been feeling well for a couple months. Um, I was very tired. I was very bloated. I, you know, I always said, whoever thought I'd be talking constipation on a Zoom, but, you know, <laughs> I, I was constipated all the time. And I was going to the doctors. Oh, let's try some B12. Well, you've got five children. Of course you're tired. You're a mom. You're, you know, you're working. <laughs> like, but I was so tired. Sometimes I would have to pull over on the side of the road and close my eyes for 10 minutes. And I'm like, this is not normal. So did I, that's what got me curious is that I was like tired and I would get sick easily. And I was like, what is happening? I, I haven't heard anyone else say that. Like that was the, wow. So go uh, ahead. Oh my Continue. God. Or I, then I, you know, we have a summer home in the Hamptons. So it was like an hour drive. I would be calling my sister saying, you got to talk to me. <laughs> you, I, I'm exhausted. You have to talk to me. And she's like, what is wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I'm just really tired. So back and forth to the doctors, not finding anything. And then one day, I think in March, March, probably around March, I just had this episode of bloat that was so awful. Like I was doing yoga poses. I was drinking, what's that clear? Um, not witch hazel. Uh, it'll come to me. What do they give you to, oh, it's a clear liquid. It'll come to me while we're talking. No. Anything just to stop this bloat. So I call the doctor, and he sends me to gastro, and she says, okay, let's do a scan. But I couldn't get in for a week, so by the time they get me in, I'm feeling better, I cancel the scan. Now it's, and I'm still not feeling well, I'm popping B12 like it's nobody's business, as if that's going to cure whatever ails me. And then one night in the summer, we were having dinner, and I had salmon, and I said to my family, you'll have to excuse me. I'm not feeling well. 
and went upstairs with the worst stomach ache I've had in my entire life and spent the rest of the night there. Because I don't ask for help, my theory was, if I start throwing up, I'll wake up my husband. Until then, <laughs> we, we are not going anywhere. <laughs> I made it through the night, most of it in the bathroom, never threw up, and I called my gastro in the morning and said, something's wrong, I need you to schedule that scan for me right now, like today. I can't, something is terribly wrong. They diagnosed me with diverticulitis. But not just did the you know, radiologist at the center say it. I have a brother-in-law who I trust more than anything in the world. He's a radiologist. He said, yep, diverticulitis. His brother, who's a gastroradiologist, said, yep, diverticulitis. So they treated me for diverticulitis, which is awful. I ate white bread, white chicken, white rice, and apple juice. Lovely. For a month while taking... Um, Two of the worst antibiotics I've ever taken. I think it was Flagyl and Cipro. I've taken both of those at the same time. Yes, and they're... it's the most god awful, horrific combo ever to exist in the world of antibiotics. I got to day nine, and I'm like, no. I'm, I took I took the dose in the morning, and I'm like, I'm done. I don't, you know, whatever happens happens, but I'm not doing this. Oh. I'm gonna have. They're gonna have to tell me I'm dying to go back to the this. And medication. I kept taking it. I was getting, and the thing is, I was only getting sicker. I wasn't even getting better. I finally, like three weeks in, my gastro says, come back in, I want to see you. And so I did skip one thing. I did have an exam by my GP who, when he like palpated my stomach, I said, ow. And he said, oh, you really shouldn't be saying ow. <laughs> but that was it. So I go back in and she now wants to adjust my medication. And I said to her, look, at, at what point do I say, I can't live with this and go to the emergency room? And that was a Tuesday. She said, if by Friday you're not better, I want you to go to the hospital. So on Thursday, I called my husband. I had a puppy at the time. Don't even ask what, I don't even know what I was thinking with that one. Uh, I called my husband. I said, I'm packing me and the dog up. Meet me at home. I can't do this another day. I, I can't. So I call my doctor. I'm headed to the ER. They admit me. <laughs> And they put me in isolation because at this point I've been on this horrible antibiotic and have a god-awful stomach. Now they need to make sure I don't have C. diff. <laughs> so they mm. put me literally in isolation with a metal toilet coming out of the wall. They finally admit me with morphine, thank God, and that was like late Thursday night. Friday, I'm sicker. Saturday, I'm sicker. Sunday. Now I look nine months pregnant. Clearly, <laughs> something's wrong. Really? Yeah. So Monday, they say, you know what? Let's take you down for one, less scan, one last scan. And I said to my husband, if anybody but my gastro comes in, we're in trouble. And here's the crazy thing. I spent most of my life convinced I had some kind of cancer or another. And yet I never thought <laughs> for one second I actually had cancer. <laughs> so you, you mean you spent like just most I don't of your see life my sister I've got a bump here it must be cancer I've got okay, a lump okay, there it must be you. cancer just like a you know it was like a do you know what a mishigas is it was like a craziness <laughs> of mine mm. and yet at this point I never once what I did say though was if in fact this is diverticulitis I am going to have to choose to have that piece of colon removed because I, I cannot live like this they take me down for one last scan, and in walks a doctor I've never met. 
and he is a colorectal surgeon who informs me I have a tennis ball sized tumor that has already perforated and I will be going down for surgery the next morning. Tennis ball sized tumor. Okay, yeah. we don't even get to the perforated part. Like <laughs> my tumor, my tumor, like it was mine. The tumor growing and why, why do we say these things? I it's don't like, know. I guess, I mean, I, ne I also don't think of like my, uh, my stomach like as mine. I don't feel like I possess it. It's just like there, but yet I, I speak like I possess the like tumor. Like we own it. So the tumor that was in my rectum was, uh, I don't know, like X number of centimeters. You know, It was not the size of a tennis ball. That, that's not something you want to hear. And then, nope. oh, oh, and it's perforated. And it's perforated, which is what the, so what was happening was, because I would get an occasional day of relief. And what was happening was it was a very small perforation so it would sort of start to close for a minute, which would give me a couple hours of relief. So, you know, I'd get a little sleep. I could eat some of that white food. And then it would, you know, pop open again and just send me back to misery. So he said, so that was Monday. He says, we're going down for surgery Tuesday morning. And the thing is, I was on a lot of medication. I was on uh, morphine, Dilaudid, like, it never registered what he was saying to me because I heard him say the word. Um, he didn't use the word cancer. He, whatever the tumor, he's, it didn't, I didn't know what he was talking about. So I said to mm -hmm. him, you know what, can you, my brother-in-law is my, you know, medical advocate. Can you, can I, can you call him? Can, and so they had a whole conversation with me sitting right there. And I went down to surgery the next morning. They took a foot of my colon, 24 lymph nodes, my appendix, <laughs> one ovary. Uh, I'd already had a hysterectomy years ago. Um, and 24 lymph nodes. Wow. The crazy thing is that morning before surgery, this is how I actually found out I had cancer. So, you know, August, the new residents have been on for what? Six weeks, maybe? They come on in July. So at about, my husband had gone home to shower and that's the advantage of having older kids. He got to, you know, he was with me basically 24-7. The one time he goes home to shower, this first-year resident comes in and she says, okay, you know, have you decided what you're going to do about your treatment? I said, what do you mean? I'm going down for surgery in two hours. She says, well, you know, they might not get all the cancer. <laughs> I said, what? She says, yeah, they might not get all the cancer. <laughs> now I'm hysterical. I'm also not a crier. Hyster I cannot pull myself together. In walks the gastro. It's like, what is go what's wrong? Ugh! You know, I, didn't, I said I had no idea what you were talking about. I thought you were just going to take out the growth and be on our way. Right. Perhaps I'm wondering, you know, they tell you, oh, you have blue to bloody blue to carcinoma, da, 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 da. And like carcinoma, I mean, hell, I didn't even know what an oncologist was until I heard them say it enough times. And I'm like, oh, my chemo doctor is an oncologist. That's it's okay. It's a cancer treatment, right? So they probably said carcinoma or whatever car. So I don't even know the words like I'm, yeah, well, I'm not here. Yes, to, they did. They did use a word that to a person who knew what they were talking about, like my brother-in-law, they would know it was cancer, but I consider myself a layperson in terms of medical, right. unless it's had something to do with my children. I don't really know what you're talking about. I was devastated.
How did that intern feel? Not bad enough. Because <laughs> when she came in after my surgery, I looked at my doctor and said, she's going to have to leave. And he looked at me. I said, uh, I don't want her in here. And then he came in and said, look, I won't, she doesn't have to touch you, but she is my student. <laughs> I do need her in here. At that point, I'm like, whatever. But then it only got worse when they sent in the nurse <laughs> to mark me up for a possible ostomy. I had no idea what this woman was doing. Where do you wear your jeans? Uh, where do your underwear sit? I'm going, what? And she, while she's making X's on me, I said, what are you doing? Oh, well, you might need a bag. I said, what? And then she starts telling me about stoma care. And I said to her, look, I can't go into surgery like this. If I come out needing this information, you are welcome to come back and talk to me. But I cannot go into surgery <laughs> with all this being dumped on me. Again, I probably offended her a little bit. But at that point, it was not my, I didn't really care who I was offending. And she left. Uh, and then they took me down for surgery. Five and a half hours later, they did this whole massive, like they took my entire intestine out, did something called a lavage where they cleaned the whole thing, put it back together, hope it wakes up. <laughs> and, you know, the first thing I did when I woke up was grab my stomach. And he's like, nope, I was able to, you didn't need a bag. Yeah, they want to see how your abdomen bends. They want to see where the folds are in the skin in case they need to give you a back. And uh, so you were startled with the diagnosis. You were startled with the idea of having a pouch. I've never even heard, I mean, obviously I've heard of them. I didn't know anybody who had one. I didn't know it was a thing with colon cancer. Like, where was the this was, this was as now, well, you know, three years later, where were the people who were supposed to come in and sh enlighten you? Yeah, that sounds pretty disappointing. You know, I, uh, only time I remember something like that happening was when the surgeon I saw initially told me that he was going to resect. You want to know what? I'm going to take that back. I'm not going to get into that. It's going to take the conversation way too f to the left and be nothing. It's not relevant. This brought it to my mind. Yeah, so you're startled into your treatment. Thank heavens you woke up with no pouch. I have a pouch. It's permanent. It's not going away. And I'm glad to know anytime a person doesn't have to have one. I don't even notice it. It's just like whatever. But obviously, given the option, we want our body intact. Right. And I now know I would have dealt with whatever came my way. Might have taken me even a little longer. But I felt like I was never given an opportunity to even grasp what was happening because it happened so quickly. Yeah, you are suddenly aware that you're about to go in for cancer surgery, you're bawling your eyes out and then you're being marked up for a pouch with either no one told you or you didn't hear them. No, I'm pretty sure no one told me because <laughs> my husband doesn't remember it either. So that one, I'm pretty sure no and one had a conversation. Like, yeah, you're like, stop. No more. 
And, you know, in their defense, even if they didn't tell you, it would have been good if you were marked up because they would have known where to put it. But uh, Absolutely. But what, what we're talking about, though, is the overwhelm that hits us. Like, I had quite some time before I had to have surgery. I got additional opinions. I cleansed my body. I did a lot of things. You were told, good morning, you have cancer. And we're going for surgery. And we're going now. for surgery. And everybody was stunned. First of all, I wasn't even due for a colonoscopy. I was turning 49, no, no family history. So it wasn't even on the radar. However, I did have some classic symptoms that I used to blame myself and say I didn't push hard enough or I didn't, you know, I, you know, I'm not good at telling my own symptoms, but I was telling. I was going to the doctor and they diagnosed me with something, which was a relief when they told me I had diverticulitis. I'm like, okay, we can, we can take care of that. So I can't, you know, I don't blame me and I don't blame them, but it was um, a very quick turnaround from thinking I had something minor. Right. To I, have, I have an abdominal issue. To going into what was really life-threatening slash life-saving surgery. Yeah. And then you've got to tell your children. <laughs> How old were your kids at the time? So uh, my youngest was 14, and then the next one was 17, 19, 21, and then 24. I think I just gave you five. Yeah, she's a... F so my two oldest were already married. Yeah. And the youngest was 14, you said? Mm, yeah, you don't, there's, oh gosh, there's so much there. There's some, and I want to know your experience. It just brings up for me how having to tell people, having to tell our children, wishing we didn't have to tell them, not wanting them to have to go through the emotional response of it. Having to tell your parents parents, my siblings, my doc, my wife was on the phone with me when the doc told us, you know, but my stepson, my siblings, my parents, my friends, you know, my buddies, like, hey man, I gotta, gotta tell you something. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were supposed to go to Nantucket with friends so I went to the hospital Monday, the 20th, like I think the 27th, I was supposed to go to Nantucket. And I kept saying to my husband, don't cancel yet. No, don't cancel yet. I'm going to be out of the hospital. Please don't cancel yet. And then he had to call them and say, not only are we not coming, but Leslie has colon cancer. And at this point, I didn't have a stage. Mm. And they're like, what? Now, my sister, she'd been part of my entire process. When I woke up from surgery, she was actually here. My family's in Chicago. She was waiting for me when I woke up. But, you know, my kids just thought I was having a stomach thing. Right. It happens to other people. 
Exactly. That was my day after diagnosis. Can't be me. My wife goes to work with the baby. Stepson's off to school. I take the day off. And I fall apart. I am not one of those people. I'm a normal person. I'm a healthy person. I'm 36 years old. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? How could it be? How could it be that we got to this place and had no clue? And yet, and I'm sure you've had the same experience at this point. Everybody got to this point without, no, I should say everybody. Many people get to the point without having a clue. Yeah, so in, in my mind, prior to diagnosis, people who were diagnosed with cancer were smokers or, and everyone who's listening, get that this was just my ignorant mind back then and all the judgment and just, you know, the, the, the thoughts you don't even notice passing. It's either a smoker, heavy drinker, someone who eats horribly unhealthy food all the time, but most importantly, a person who has like unhealthy looking skin, their gait isn't so even, you know, all these things. Sickly. That like, what? They look sickly. They look sickly. Those people get cancer. What healthy were your folks, symptoms? I'm sorry I, I interrupted you. No, it's fine. Healthy people don't get it was my thought. My symptoms were I was passing blood. Mm. And I went to the doc and he gave me a digital and said, you have hemorrhoids. And I go back like six weeks later. I'm like, hey, doc, man, the blood is really starting to increase here. He's like, okay, well, yeah, it's hemorrhoids. Uh, more fiber. I went back two more times. One time, it was just a fiber conversation. I think the fourth time, he gave me another digital and said, yep, just uh, continue the fiber. After that fourth appointment, I went into that fourth appointment. I'm like, doc, I'm like old faithful. I pass gas, and there's blood. Wow. Like Something's not right. He tells me, yeah, it's hemorrhoids. So I left that appointment, and a few days later, I called and said, I want to see a specialist. And... My doctor's not available, and so I see his, uh, I see the physician assistant that works under him. And I'm like, I need to see a specialist. He's like, can I give you digital? I'm like, no more digitals. I just want to see a specialist. I see a specialist, like, you know, a couple of days later. He scopes me. He gives me a digital, and he says, do you have cancer in your family? First words out of his mouth. Then he scopes me. He's, There's so much blood, I can't see anything. Yeah, you have to have a colonoscopy. Go in for a colonoscopy, you have cancer. How many months had you been seeing your doctor? Uh, six, six and a half. Yeah, he was feeling the tumor. Or maybe I had some hemorrhoids. But there's a tumor right there. It was, it was, it was t the tumor was literally attached to the sphincter muscle. Because I saw when, my, when I had a second opinion, there was a sigmoidoscopy, and I was awake for it. And you could see the tumor. And like every doctor was feeling the tumor, and my primary missed it. I was 36 years old. You know, I think he was just following the textbook, and mm -hmm. I mean, I know it shook him because I saw the physician's Good. assistant. Yeah, I saw the physician's assistant one day, and he was so apologetic. He's like, I missed it. I looked at him. I said, no, you didn't. He's like, what? I go, you didn't give me a digital. I wouldn't let you. 
He was, and I think he was kind of carrying it with his supervisor, with the doctor. I saw the doc out in public in a store, in a little, uh, you know, organic food store in the you know, roadside store, and he beelined for the back as soon as he saw me. I bet. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. It's really odd that you didn't turn around and say, you know, hey, I'm so sorry. That's all. That's all a person needs sometimes. So I waited by the door. And there's only one way out. I just stood around. And uh, I knew that I didn't want to unload on him. I could already tell he felt bad. And me unloading on him wasn't going to do anything. And trust me, part of me really wanted to. That's never reason I was even having that thought. I stood by the door. He comes up. I said, hey. And he just stops. And he's just staring at me. He's not talking. I'm like, oh my gosh, really? So I looked at him, hoping that I could like, you know, extend the olive branch and, and, and create a space for him to say something. I said, hey, Doc, I want you to know that uh, I know you had my best interest in mind. Just stares at me for a few seconds and says, how you doing? I'm like, how am I doing? So I'm doing all right. He says, okay, well, good. Good luck. He walks out, I go out in my car, punch the ceiling of my car. And I don't punch walls, I don't punch any, I'm not that person. I was so angry. I was like, you gotta be kidding me, dude. And then ironically, I went to the movies one day by myself. I walk up into the theater and he's sitting there with a few of his buddies. And all Seriously? Right. Oh are, yeah. Are you in a small town? Oh yeah, well, uh, okay. maybe 40,000. It ain't a village. There's, car there's, there's karma. <laughs> oh, yeah. And his eyes, he, his eyes met mine. And, you know, his eyes got real big and his head sunk back. And I thought to myself, why am I seeing this dude? And then I thought to myself, well, he's also seeing you, buddy. And then I went to a, uh, we have Cornell University here in Ithaca. And I went to, I love going to the football games. And they're not a great team, but I don't care. I, you know, I'd go with my dad back and you could smoke in stadiums. And you'd smell the cigar smoke <laughs> and you'd have a candy bar and some hot chocolate and watch football. It was great. And I go to the ball game and met the, met the concession stand. And there he is standing there. And he looks at me and he made some joke about the line. And I was just like, really, dude? Like, then I thought, this guy's never going to, take any responsibility nope. he's never going to own it and it's shame on him I don't you know I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't angry every time I saw him but I continued to like hold the space for him to do something that he was never going to do? Really? I mean... You know what I think that part of that is? It's those unrealistic expectations we have of people who we believe, we want to believe they should be doing something because that's what we would do. Right. And once we, as you know... Once we can let go of that, it just makes him a questionable doctor, but it also makes him, you know, that's how he wants to go through life. It doesn't have to have any negative outcome on me. 
he doesn't get that power. Yeah. And I'm sometimes accused of being too generous and you know, too forgiving of people. Not forgiving, because I am a very forgiving person. I, I find the capacity, I find the ability to forgive people. But in my mind, what I was thinking was, okay, so what happened in his life that he got to this point that apologizing is freezing him like a deer in the headlights? Why do I ask that? Because I know what it's like to freeze. There are times that I am your fiercest, fiercest, that's not even a word. There are times, there are your times I, <laughs> I am your most fierce advocate and I will fight with and for you to the end. Then there are times I freeze. Sure. It can be, I was just at the pharmacy the other day grabbing some allergy medicine and the guy said, uh, what did he ask me? He said, do you want the, oh yeah, do you want the 25 doses or the 50? And I turned into one of those commercials, paper or plastic. <laughs> I ended up mocking myself in front of him. I'm like, dude, I just got hit with a paper or plastic. I can't decide. I froze. And one of the things that I had to accept about myself just a few years ago, working with a therapist, is I got, I could never forgive myself for being someone who froze. And I got freezing as just a part of life. So to bring it all back around, my former doc, he froze. And I don't know what happened in his life that had him be a person who freezes. And I bet if I went back to the day he was born and went through his entire life, I'd be like, oh, this makes perfect sense. It doesn't mean it's okay. See, I think that's so generous of you. <laughs> because in my mind, I'd be saying, what created the arrogance that he couldn't apologize? Fair. I mean, when a person commits a crime and they get put in jail and it's a, you know, crime worthy of going to jail and there was justice served, I may still ask myself, I wonder what happened in his life that got him there. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I'm suggesting he shouldn't, mm -hmm. he or she shouldn't be in jail. I agree. He or she shouldn't be in prison, right? But my mind goes back to that because we were all born these precious little babies and I'll probably start crying right now these sweet, precious little things. And then you get old enough and light, life, you know, when you're like six years old, life takes you out at the knees and you realize that this isn't the world you thought it was. And it happens a couple more times. Like if sure you, there's, there's, uh, there's many different uh, philosophies. Um, you can go from, uh, um, who created the Waldorf School? Steiner. From Steiner to astrology, to there, there's so many different groups, and they look at like when you're basically seven, fourteen, and twenty-one and twenty-eight, right? But the the keys are seven, fourteen, and twenty-one. Around those times, something happens, and you realize you're on your own. You don't matter. Life is not what I thought it was, and it forever shapes us. And every one of us who's a parent wants our kids to not go through that. And one of the hardest things is recognizing like that. Life would never do them that disservice. We all have to be handed our struggles. 
Our children do not get to be raised in perfection. I'll probably go to my grave wishing he was. Yep. We call it life's 50-50. Yeah. And when we spend so much time trying to make that not true for them, we're actually doing them a disservice. Wow. Yeah. And that is something, because I still have a range. My oldest is 30. My daughter's 26. <laughs> Good God. My next son is 24. And then 22. I might have those days. Whatever. Yep. But, you know, like my fourth one, just he actually just graduated um, Oswego and is headed to Syracuse for social work. And Great. he got locked out of his apartment yesterday, <laughs> his brand new apartment. And he calls me and says, I'm not old enough to live, to live on my own. <laughs> I'm like, um, first of all, you've been doing it for two years already, maybe three. And okay, you locked yourself out of your apartment. Call the guy who brought you the key. Like, I've spent so many years trying to make everything feel better for these children because I thought it was my job. Mm. And it is part of my job. But it's also part of my job to say, guys, Sometimes life sucks. Yeah. Look, my, when my daughter, my daughter got married um, March 30th, I want to say 2016, my father-in-law died two days before. Oh, no, my goodness gracious. And there was not a damn thing I could do to make that better. And we, guess what? We all got through it. Her grandpa died two days before she got married. Oh, that's, oh, mm-hmm. that's and just. And you know what? She spoke at his funeral. Mm. She, she had the grace of an adult. Like, I, I couldn't have asked for more. Uh, you know, it was far more than I probably could have. I would have probably been feeling sorry for myself, which there was that level, you know, that element. But she also knew there was nothing we could do to change that. And... Sometimes life just sucks. Yeah. Just like when we have to tell our children we have cancer. There's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to make it. Unfortunately, at you know, the, especially the age um, my children were at, there is life experience of cancer not having a good outcome. Mm. So I want to ask you about that in just one second. Mm-hmm. But I want to bring it back to really answer your question because it just came to me when you asked, when you acknowledged, like, wow, like the, the way you dealt with your doctor was uh, surprising. I think it's because I'm not perfect at this. So let me say this differently. I think it's because I know deep down. When I've made a mistake and someone shames me, all that does is feed my story about what a loser, what a stupid asshole I am, what a piece of shit that I am. That story, that doesn't need any more food. That does, that, give that thing a starvation diet and it's still going to be there. We just grow up and we learn to recognize, oh, you again. You. Oh, Nice. I actually named mine Candace at one point. And for all of you named Candace, I apologize. And then there's, then there's a woman going, like, why is it a she? I'm like, oh, maybe my mother? I don't know. But, but I named her Candace. And she watches Netflix and just eats popcorn, reads books, 
And then as soon as I'm feeling down about myself, she pauses her Netflix and she lays into me and she tells me what a complete loser I am. Like I had to name her and give her an identity because it was, I needed to find a way to separate myself from this thinking that isn't mine. It's just the robot mind that never shuts up. Knowing that my doc has that, I'm like, why do I need to make him feel like garbage? He clearly knows. And I'm only going right? going to want to apologize and clean it up. And honestly, I think it was like just like self-serving. It's like, I know I'm going to apologize to him if I give him hell. And I don't want to have to apologize to him. Hell no. So maybe it was divisive and mean that I was being forgiving. <laughs> no, I think that meant you took the time to think about what was going to be the end goal there. Yeah, I didn't want to have to clean it up. And when I think how every person was a sweet baby and then something happened and then something else happened, I want to treat people like that. And I didn't want to feed the part of his mind that was just going to beat him up more because I'm sure it was doing it all on its own. Very generous. Yeah, there's times I, like when I punched that ceiling, I was like, why were you so generous with him? Why were you so giving with him? And I'm like... Because you get to feel good about yourself having done that. You didn't feed the story of... Yeah. Why would you want to feed anyone's story? Heck, my wife and I are now split up and... When she ended our marriage, it was very surprising. I was not in agreement. Now we're friends. I'm like, I thanked her for ending our marriage. And she was like, are you out of your mind? I'm like, no. Like, she was like, I did a terrible job. I go, yeah, but, but ugh, trust me. Thank you. Like, we're both so much happier. But my point is, after she ended our marriage, I wanted people to tell her she was the most horrible person on the planet. And when we finally sat down, and forgave one another and apologized to each other and had that profoundly beautiful conversation. You know, she generously asked me, what was it like for you when I left you? What was it like for you to get diagnosed with cancer 10 months later? That was your second? Yeah. She's like, how hard was that? I'm like, it was, and I told her. Then, and we both just sobbed. And then there was some quiet and I'm like, hold on a second, what was it like for you? And she told me. And some, that someone we knew told her, like, she's the most horrible person they ever met. And I wanted her to hear that so bad. And when she told me that it happened, it broke my heart. Like I, I, I married this woman because I loved her. And why we weren't together is because we both <laughs> did not have the skills to be married and cancer and everything and everything. And, and now we look back and, like, we're both very different people. But, you know, in my heart, like, I don't want people told they're garbage. You know, anybody who's done something horrible, let me be more, that, that, took, that takes too many people out of the conversation. Anyone who's ever done anything that hurt somebody and they knew it, they did it, or they made a terrible mistake and didn't apologize for it, like my doc, you don't need to tell them. That's true. They see it every time they look in the mirror. And sometimes you got to speak your mind. Yeah. And, and please yeah. do. I'm not suggesting that I don't get mad at people and be like, yo, hold the phones, right? But this was just, and, and you know, with him, with my wife, these were just like, uh, well, actually, no, I gave my wife hell for a long time. Well, because <laughs> we were talking about two different things, though. Yeah. You're speaking your mind, and then you're speaking, they're speaking your mind about something somebody did to you. 
And then there's ripping into a person's actual being. They're two different things. And if you can separate them, that conversation of you hurt me, you wronged me, that goes very differently than you're a piece of crap who never knows how to treat anybody, who's kicked me, you know, too many times. Two very different conversations, and they end differently. Yeah, one of the most surprising experiences I ever had in the area of anger was when someone came up to me once and said, Bert, I'm very angry with you. I was like, what is happening? Like, in my home, if someone was angry at me, yelling, screaming, arms flailing, the whole drama... And I learned in that moment, I can be angry without having a temper tantrum. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I can be angry without acting like I'm five and didn't get the purple crayon. <laughs> you know what? I tell this very similar story when, and it was through my um, going to school for coaching. Uh, I used to have a phrase that I'd say to my, and we've been married now, um, November will be 28 years. It's a second marriage for both of us. We have worked very hard for this marriage, but we were not great communicators. You know, we had a lot of kids. He worked hard, wasn't a whole lot. And I had a standard phrase that went, you ruined my day. (laughs) (laughs) And that phrase could last for, I mean, I was really good at holding a grudge. (laughs) Days I could go without talking to him. I learn about life coach. I'll, so I, we'll get back to how I got to healing myself. I'm still myself. laughing. Oh, you... I, I, it was a because I, I'm seeing myself in it, trust me. Mm-hmm. You ruined my day. And he'd be like, what? So one day we're walking, and he brings up a credit card with one of the kids. And I, didn't, and I looked at him, and he didn't say, I didn't say anything. He says, what? Now you're mad at me? I said, no, I'm not mad at all. I want to think about my response before... I answer you. He's like, uh, oh, okay. Because <laughs> this is shocking behavior because normally I'd have stormed off. That's not my, you know, you let them spit. I'd have had a fit. So he's totally, like, doesn't even know what to do with me at that point. And about three minutes later, I turned to him. I said, you know what? I'm ready to answer you. I don't accept the responsibility for this. I don't pay the bills. I don't see the credit cards. You do. But you like to wait till they've overspent and then make it my problem. If you have a problem with the children's spending, take it to them. And what didn't come out of my mouth was, you ruined my day. And we went on to have a very lovely Saturday afternoon. Isn't it incredible? I got to decide how I wanted to respond to that. I didn't have to knee jerk ruined my day (laughs) and did you say you got that out of your coaching training that's beautiful stuff the first thing I learned that I've never understood it wasn't even a concept I'd ever heard of is that there's only one person I'm responsible for their actions their thoughts their words their feelings and that's me yeah that's that is a brilliant piece of information. And most of us are raised in homes right out of the gates 
we are made responsible for other people's behavior. So naturally, and other people's feelings, other people's responses. You hurt my feelings. Um, I actually can't hurt your feelings, no matter how hard I try. You may feel I hurt. Go ahead, go ahead. I said words, and you decided how you got to feel about them. Right, and that's a foreign concept to a lot of people. And as you're just saying, I remember when I learned that I was in this transformational weekend course, and uh, the leader said something, and I said, you may believe that. Mm. And I'd raised my hand to, to explain to him how he was wrong, right? And over that weekend, I learned, oh my gosh. I, why am I responsible for my response? Because I have no ability to change anyone else's thinking and thought process. They're going through life back to day one when they were born in a sweet, precious baby, and then life happened. As one of my teachers says, you know, you wake up one day, and you're in the middle of a barroom brawl, and you're, you know, an adolescent going like, wait a second, I'm responsible for me, right? Or not, but, you know, you, you become aware of, of, of yourself in this life, and we can only control ourselves. It's been the number one life-altering driving thought that my children, my husband, my any anybody who knows me will tell you. It has changed every relationship I have. I am so happy for you. I'm dancing happy for you. It's so wonderful. A few years ago, my son said something. He and his mom were in my apartment, and... Uh, he said something to me and I said, kiddo, you know, that really hurts my feelings. And she looks at me, she looks at him <laughs> and she says, no one can hurt your feelings. And I, I said, they put it back on us. She, you know, and I looked at her, I looked at him. I said, your mother is hundred percent right. You cannot hurt my feelings. I don't know why I even said that. I apologize. And the reason I'm sharing that in this conversation is because awareness doesn't free us from all the years of baggage that will still arise. But what it does is it gives us the ability to take responsibility for it. It's like, yeah, I just hit your car with mine. I'm not going to start yelling at you. I'm going to say, I'm really sorry I just hit your car. How could you do that? Uh, I'm an idiot, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't looking. What, I mean, what answer do you want? Like, we make mistakes. We mess up. Yes. And what we do after. It's what we do after. And then eventually, you do what you did. And you go, he's like, why aren't you responding? I want to just think about what I want to say. Code four, I would normally rip your head off, say you ruined my day, and then nothing is good for three days. But instead, I'm like, huh, just going to walk through this. Well done. Beautiful. Thank so, you. go ahead. No, go ahead. I just... I love it. I love it. It's, it's, um, it's such a treat because for all of you listening, like Leslie and I have never spoken except for like the 13 seconds before we hit record on this conversation. Like we've just, you know, I never know who I'm going to speak to. There's just, there's something in Leslie's speaking and a response we had in an engagement we had on social media. And I said, huh, I want to bring her on because I have a feeling that she's going to be a great guest. And I'm thrilled you did. <laughs> and I'm right. <laughs> so let's go back. I interrupted right, you. So, you had to so tell I'll your kids. 
you had to so, tell your kids. And so it's really funny. Everybody wants to know about telling your kids. Everybody's like, what was it like? What do I do? What do I say? So, it, so I was clearing my, um, I had I have like 50 something voice notes. Some of my husband snoring, you know, like things. I'm like, I got to dump these so I can have room for this. So there were two interesting ones on there. One was, it said London. This one, actually, you're the first person I'm telling this besides my husband uh, and my sister last night. So I, it was an appointment with a chiropractor I had in November of 2016. I thought, why did I record that? That's so strange. Because first of all, obviously I did it without permission, but I couldn't. Uh, so I'm listening to this thing and all of a sudden I, and I had, she'd asked me to have x-rays before she started treating me. And all of a sudden I hear her say, do you have fibroids? I said, no, I don't have a uterus. She says, oh, it must, she said something about, uh, must, you must be constipated. I, I see something looks like it's going towards your intestine. Um, I, pretty sure she saw my cancer in November of 2016. And I don't actually hold her responsible. She's a chiropractor. She was looking at my neck. Right. And when were you diagnosed? August of 2017. All right. Where was the radiologist who looked at those draw, uh, those films and didn't, like, reach out to somebody? Now, again, I'm so far past it being anybody's, but I'm like, holy crap. It didn't mean anything to me back then. Okay, I was constipated. <laughs> but clearly she saw something because she asked if I had a fibroid. Right, so they saw your scans and told you that you had diverticulitis, how do you say it? Diverticulitis, but this is even, you know, before, obviously there was something on that x-ray that didn't look right, and nobody, you know, it was. this is just like a side point that I was like so stunned yesterday, so I clipped the whole voice recording, <laughs> I sent it to my husband, and I sent it to my sister, and I'm like, um, I think she's talking about my cancer, because obviously stage three, and they, they told me it had been growing for several years. You don't get to stage three without it right. having been around for several a while. Years. And I'm like, wowzers. <laughs> they could have said, it could have saved me. I could have been stage two if someone had picked up on that. So when you were diagnosed with diverticulitis, was that with a scan? So the diverticulitis was a CT scan. This was an x-ray. She, before she wanted, before she was, you know, would treat my, I was, that's the thing, I was having awful back pain. Probably related. What, listen to me saying that like I know, but. No, you know. I agree with you. It was most likely related. So. Because it was probably sitting on some nerve already. Because I had back pain, Yeah. So I just thought it was an interesting thing that, you know, when they're not looking for something specific, when you're a certain age, it's just somehow seems easy to be overlooked. Right, but wasn't your brother-in-law one of the people? So he never saw that one. This was, I thought this oh, was just okay. a simple x-ray to see my spine. She wanted no, but to didn't make he sure see I, the CT? 
the CT show. So the funny thing about the CT is he said to me, you know, it's funny. And he showed it to his, you know, um, experts. He said, it's funny. It looks like maybe there's one or two diverticula as opposed to it being a whole slew of them, which my gastro is like, <laughs> nobody's got one or two diverticula, but every professional, every radiologist agreed diverticulitis. For some reason, I guess the way the tumor was positioned, it just was not presenting until, like I said, I looked nine months pregnant. I went into the hospital now yeah. looking pregnant. Four days later, I'm... I have a picture of me standing here in front of the mirror. I'm like, this is cannot be good. Yeah. So is diverticulitis when there's like a pocket and a fold in the intestine and then it yes. fills up and gets. Yeah. So like if you eat nuts, it might get irritated. If you eat popcorn, it might get irritated. And the, and the tumor looked like that. And the, and the irony. Whatever part of the tumor they could see. Yeah. And the irony is that you had people who love and care about you also look at it and show their, you know, their colleagues, uh, their people in the industry. So it's not like your doc missed it. It's like no. people who look really carefully yes. also missed it. So it really did not appear mm -hmm. like a colon tumor. Mm -hmm. And then the other recording, I guess one of my kids wasn't home and asked me to record my conversation of my talking about, because I had to tell, I was, go, I was going in for a port the next, like this, so I get out of the hospital, four days later, I'm headed in for a port. So I have a recording of me talking to the children about my cancer, about my treatment, about my, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? you know, how, how it's going to look, what it's going to be. The prognosis. No, thank you. My prognosis, which was, everybody agreed. It was a good prognosis. You know, nobody was overly concerned. <laughs> uh, and they were all, you know, they take, and they still do, very much take their cues from me. And I have spent most of my life being stoic being, you know, not crying, you know, I stoic. It's really the only word I can use. And even in that conversation, Bert, I kept my shit together like mm. it was nobody's business. And the truth is, I was so terrified of, well, I was terrified of dying, that's for sure. But I was terrified of all the things that were about to come. The port that they were going to make me be awake for, for. The chemo, which again, I spent a lifetime saying I better not get cancer because I will not survive mm. chemo. And what do you know? I survived it. <laughs> I don't know what, what chemo do they do for rectal cancer? I had started off with the pre-surgery chemo and radiation, and that chemo was 5-FU. Oh, that's what I did. And then post-treatment was, oh gosh, what was it, full FOX. Mm -hmm. 
And then I was working with a general oncologist for the first diagnosis. So when the full fox created neuropathy in my hands and feet, he immediately put me on full furry, which is much more difficult. When I was diagnosed a second time and went to Memorial, Sloan Kettering, uh, I was on full fox and when the neuropathy started, she reduced one of the chemo. She made a change, you know what I mean? She wasn't ready to take me off it. She was like, a little neuropathy is a whole lot better than not getting the chemo you need. So I'm like, all right. You know. So you got a port. Oh, yeah. Both and times. you went home with the, back, with the pump for 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. There's very little about my cancer that, my cancer experience that I'm not at peace with. That little Take home Walkman of chemo. I could still smash one of those with a sledgehammer. <laughs> those <laughs> going home with chemo. It's like I felt violated. I'm like, it's like someone broke into my home. I'm like, you don't get to be here. You're hospital material. That was one of the toughest things for me. I had to call them. I go to the infusion center in the morning. So they so they give me my port, which people say, oh no big deal. It hurt like hell. Really? Oh my god. I may, I might have like created some of that with my insane anxiety over it, No, yeah. but I'm going, um, ow, and they're like, don't move. Okay, fine. I get this port and now I'm terrified of them accessing it. Like, no, like making myself sick on my way to the infusion center. So, so my daughter-in-law, who's a nurse, got me Emla, that numbing cream. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would put gobs on it with saran wrap before I, I hated it. So it sounds like for you, what really confronts you is not the situation, but what your mind is, creates in anticipation of it. I could not wrap my head around, especially the first time, obviously it was new, that they were gonna access this thing, this, this foreign thing in my body now which I could see I don't have it anymore but I could see the whole you know wire yep going over your clavicle yeah and then they're sending me home with it like dangling and I've got to call the visiting nurse dangling and say okay I'll be home in a half hour she come connect me the chemo would have been delivered like I brought the chemo with me oh dangling the, the chemo line yeah the, 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 so it was yep. like an I got empty you. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, would, no, I didn't know. Really? Oh, they would leave the needle in, just not attached to anything. They'd clamp it. Right, okay. The visiting nurse would come, hook me up. I would then literally talk to my kids for a few minutes. Go up to my, we got myself, we got a recliner. Because I did not think I'd be able to sleep with this thing for two nights. So I'd get my treatments on Monday. I'd go up to my room Monday, probably about four o'clock. I did not come back again till the visiting nurse came Wednesday to take it out. And then I would crash so badly that I would go back to bed and probably not come back down until Friday or Saturday. Sounds like me. I would get chemo sometimes. The first time I got diagnosed, there's this guy who'd come in in the morning, get his chemo and go to work, go, you know, swing a hammer and shovel his contract or whatever. I was like, God bless your body, because mine was like, uh, can't do this. My body was, I'm, I have such a sensitive body. I'm like the princess in the pea. 
And the funny thing is, I'm not. Minus the princess part. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm really, you know, I just, I, and now I know part of it was, I never even tried to tell myself I didn't have to feel this way. Mm. I was so willing to dive headfirst into that river of misery and no, no one could have stopped me. I was hell bent on it. Can you say more about that? <laughs> yeah. And here's, so here's why I'm, I'm curious. Uh, no, I'm going to shut up. Can you say more about that? So I, I actually can give you a, a really good example. Uh, my husband actually just finished treatment for prostate cancer. Oh, wow. How's he doing? So he's doing great. He actually, he had a radical prostatectomy in November of 2019. Unfortunately, his PSA started going back up. So he just finished um, 39 treatments of radiation. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Of, that, that's a lot. Yeah, five days a week, eight weeks. Yeah, eight weeks. And my sister says to me, are you sure you're okay? Because, you know, <laughs> you really seem okay. I said to her, I'm absolutely okay. Because I know now that I could choose to go back to that place of woe is us. How are we ever going to do this? Life is over. And miss out on all that time of enjoying each other, the kids, the grandbabies. Bingo. But I got to actively choose how I wanted to think and feel about that. And I didn't want to go. So now I'll jump back. Six months of treatment. I'm now 60 pounds overweight. I gained 60 pounds on steroids. Um, I cut my hair like super, super short because it was falling out. And I didn't lose it all, but it was like clumpy. Yeah, yeah. And I hated waking up with long hair on my bed. So I just, I didn't shave it. My, now it's growing out. I, in my head, everything about me looked wrong. Okay. And I sat there for two, not an exaggeration, but two years. I got one, but the couch was probably shaped to my ass because... It was just my spot of misery. And I thought I deserved it. This Look, is post-treatment? I, I earned it. I went through full fox with 5-FU and Oxyplant. It was a misery. I, you know, I, I couldn't drink anything cold. I couldn't. Thank God my neuropathy was limited because it didn't start to like the 10th treatment. So we were able to keep going. I had built up everything in my head to mean I got to be miserable. Yeah, and the amazing thing is, is you do, if you want to. And I did. I was married to it. I believed it was just the way, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was waiting for the next scan to show my cancer was back. I was waiting for my next CEA to show my numbers were going up. I couldn't go from month to month because then it was still month to month. It never entered my mind to say, oh, whatever it is, it is, we'll deal with it. I was perfectly happy <laughs> in this misery. I love that 
you're speaking about that because again it's noticing your thinking and noticing and being the observer of that thinking i noticed long after cancer treatments are over when i get sick and i'm homesick and post treatment my immune system never bounced back mm. and i've tried many things and now i'm trying something else currently and these masks for the last year have been fantastic because I got sick once and I think it was because I ran myself down. It wasn't even from like, you know, I didn't get a virus from somebody. Anyway, when I get sick, what I've done historically, or may I even put it differently, in the, you know, post-treatment and everything, I would get sick and I started noticing that when I was sick, I was upset about being sick. I was upset about not being able to work and how that might impact me financially. I was upset about the fact that I had to feel this way. And I started noticing how bad I was feeling. So I, in one thought, gave up my resentment and bitterness about being homesick, all of this discomfort just went away. And it floored me. And then a couple of years later, I don't know, months later, whatever, I was getting sick all the time. But one day I was like, I was writing, just journaling when I was sick. I noticed, I read it like after I was feeling better. I was like, dude, you get sick and you're a full-blown drama queen. You're the king of misery. You're resentful and bitter. Like, why would you want to be? Like, dude, turn on Netflix and have a great time and, and enjoy it. Don't, Leslie, I don't watch television. I don't watch movies. I never do. It's like, I mean, not I never do. I watch them with my kid. But like, I really, it's just not something I do. I'd rather play my guitar, go for a walk, do whatever build something i don't watch movies so when i get sick now i'm like oh yay i'm gonna watch a netflix series that i've been wondering about <laughs> so you know what's so crazy about that i just three weeks ago so i had i developed two hernias about a year after my initial surgery incisional hernias in okay. my stomach okay. i had them fixed in february of 19 within eight months they were back Part of it is, you know, God forbid any doc, you know, either the doctor's fat shaming or saying nothing instead of, so this doctor just didn't tell me that the heavier I was, the more likely they were going to come back. Okay. So now they're getting bigger. And I said to my husband, you know, this was kind of hurting me. So I'm now looking for a specialist because now I need a re-repair. <laughs> now it's no longer just getting them fixed. So I go to a doctor in the city who specializes in this uh, literally... Six weeks ago, I went to him and I said, yeah, you know, I'd really like to do this after the summer. Enjoy the, you know, we're finally out of getting out of COVID a little bit. <laughs> he says to me, well, you can wait, but I can't promise you you're not going to end up in emergency surgery with some stranger in Southampton Hospital. Mm, I said, okay, when's your next date? <laughs> so Monday, the, so the 10th of May, I go into Mount Sinai. I have now, it's really a major re-repair with like apparently a mesh that is so gigantic I am stunned by the level of pain and I find myself right 
back on my couch. And I have a coach and I'm journaling and like about a week and a half ago, I have a call with my coach and I said to her, what is wrong with me? I, I'm literally writing in my journal. This doesn't feel good and I can't stop it from happening. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to go out my door. And she says to me, you have a human brain that remembers it was a little easier to be miserable than do the work to not be miserable. She said, but neither feels good, so which one's gonna make you feel better at the end? I said, I gotta go. And I literally got in the shower, put my shoes on, and went outside. Mm. I didn't take anything with me to listen to. I needed to be able to hear my thoughts to take me back to, I'm not that person. It's okay to not feel well and take the time you need to recover, but I don't have to sink to a place that truly felt so awful. And it took me about a week, because again, I just couldn't get over the level of pain I was having. Yeah. But it's so powerful to know that, you know, everybody thinks their thoughts just happen. not true we get to create the thoughts we want and we can either punish ourselves with them and allow ourselves to sink back to feeling bad or I could say yes I am in pain but my legs still work my doctor wa I walked home from the hospital Bert after my surgery 18 blocks wow because my doctor said I could it sounds like what you're saying is not that we can control the automatic thoughts, but we can control the thoughts in response to the passing thoughts. Correct. We can change the passing yeah. thought. We can hear it. We get to give it equal airtime. We get to say, oh, God, I feel bad. I'm going to sit with it and think about why I want to feel bad. And then I'm going to think about why I don't want to feel bad and what do I need to think, feel, believe to get past this. Because otherwise... I could have still, you know, been now struggling to get out of it. And it's just not what I want to do. Two years after my diagnosis, when I was st still a weight loss coach, actually popped up on my Facebook. And I swiped her away. I was not interested in anything. I now was convinced... I had chemo. I'm going to be fat forever because it's a lie that everybody loses weight when they have chemo. That's one of the great cancer lies, you know. Right. I gained weight. Um, so many people I know gain weight because, first of all, they're pumping you with steroids every beginning of treatment. And then, I don't know about you, but I, I had like a crazy, I had to have hamburgers. So eating made my nausea go away. First time I went through a cancer treatment, I was going through the chemo and radiation. My wife's like, you got to eat. I'm like, I'm not hungry. She goes, you got to eat. I said, I don't want to eat. She goes, you have to eat. I said, you're not going to get me what I want if I tell you. She goes, I will get you anything. I said, I want chicken wings and waffle fries with that cheap cheese on it. 
She came back with a huge, you know, we don't eat like that, right? She came back with a huge pile. She's like, dude, eat. Second time I get diagnosed and I'm going through treatment, I crave fruit like you wouldn't believe, but other foods. I'm like devouring fresh fruit. You know, there's two schools of thought when it comes to fresh vegetables. Some hospitals, they're like, don't eat any of it because it can have, you know, mold and whatever on it. And then the other school of thought is eat as much fresh fruit as you possibly can. I prefer the latter. I'm devouring fruit. Like, I don't eat fruit like that right now, but it's like crazy amounts, plus all the other food I was eating. I, I had to lose, I had to, you know, get exercising and walk and work off some extra weight. <laughs> 60 pounds I gained. Wow. Now, some of it truly was from the medication because there were days mm. where I didn't eat and I'd go in for my, you know, weekly checkup and he'd be, I'd be, what, five more pounds? And he'd say, it's awesome. It's great. And what's great about it? He says, because it's those who have active cancer during treatment that tend to lose weight. So we like when our mm. chemo patients gain weight. Yeah. Next thing I know, I'm 60 pounds. And it was... So finally, I click on this woman. And she says, no joke, as if she was talking to me, you are not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just telling yourself you're broken. I thought, this woman is out of her mind. But I decided to start listening to her. <laughs> and it took me about a year, nine months, to really start to want to feel better and believe her. And when I did, everything changed for me. I bet. There is a... Are you, you, want more, you want to say more? Go ahead. I was just going to say, the weight was actually an excuse to keep me emotionally unhappy because it wasn't even the weight that I lost in that first year with her. It was the miserable self-talk. It was the constant beating myself up. It was just, I didn't have to do it. Yeah. One of the important pieces, most important to me is to recognize that Beating myself up, it provides something. It gives me a pass. I get to be a victim and not try. And that's so important because people think, you know, why am I having these thoughts? What's wrong with me? Nothing. You get to be a victim. Look at, look at, you know, look in the news or look at some inspirational story and like something happened to someone and you feel so bad for them and like they get a pass. We, gives our, we give ourselves passes. Why? Life is freaking hard. Life and we, we get to be a victim. We get to blame ourselves. We get to play small. We get to hide out. And acknowledging that for me and, and the people that I was trained with, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, like that's liberating. Because then you don't, because you don't blame yourself for the thinking. It's, it's another part of the mechanism of the mind that being a victim, well, if it wasn't for them, it's all their fault. Or, you know, or mm. like me, I wake up every morning and as soon as I'm thinking and moving around, the loudest thought in my head is I'm a failure. And everyone knows. I was thinking that this morning. I think it every single morning I wake up. And I'm a, the, the kind of sensitive person that I am. I feel it very deeply. I feel really bad. 
And I've learned to recognize that that's Candace speaking. That's the part of my mind who loves to tell me that I'm no good. And I look in the mirror and I wink and I smile. I laugh. I'm like, man, you never quit, Candace. You, you get me before I'm thinking clearly. It's like, it's, you know, I'm a failure. I'm no good. Why do I even bother? Why am I even doing this podcast with Leslie? Oh my gosh. She, you know, and then I start thinking, because you love doing this, because you're contributing to the community, because you're giving survivors an opportunity to hear the real nitty-gritty, all the stuff we never get to speak about in the waiting room or in the chemo infusion, because you love doing it. I'm like, yeah. And off I go. But every morning, it's like, good morning, failure. Good morning, loser. Good morning, you're horrible at everything. <laughs> and look how you've learned to identify it and then basically tell it to back off. Yeah. Because one of the questions I ask everybody when they tell me something like that, which we call a story, is it true? Not do you think it's true, is it actually true? And usually the answer is no. So when I was able to stop being a victim to my cancer, I was just a person who had cancer, who overcame cancer. And sure, am I at higher risk than the person who never had cancer of having a recurrence? Absolutely. Doesn't mean it's gonna happen. If it happens, just like I dealt with it the first time, I will deal with it just better. And I. Don't even beat myself up about how I, that was how I had to deal with it. The only, only thing that got me through. But once I could see that I was not the victim of this colon cancer, time to stop blaming. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to be sad. I don't have to be miserable to myself. We're so miserable to ourselves. We say things to ourselves we'd never say to our children, to our spouses. Never. If someone spoke to you that way, the way if someone spoke to me the way I speak to myself, are you kidding me? And I'm a big journaler also. That's something I've learned. You know, I'm religious about it. The only time I'm not journaling is when I'm busy beating myself up. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a knee jerk. Yeah. We, and people use the v- word victim for way too many uh, situations. Like, we're not talking about, you know, being the victim of a crime, being the victim of a cancer diagnosis, if you want to use that, sure. But it's, it's the being a victim, you know. doesn't mean don't be heartbroken when you're feeling heartbroken. Don't cry your eyes out when you feel like crying your eyes out because you are doing everything you can to stay alive. But it's choosing to be a victim not recognizing that I'm getting something out of it because <clears throat> nobody's going to argue with you unless someone's got the courage to look in the eye and say, Leslie, I love you and you are being a victim. I might die. You might die. But you might not. But you might not. And for me, this thought that landed in my mind about a month after being diagnosed, and I'm forever grateful for it because I don't feel like it was my thought. 
about a month in, after all the terror and the tornado thinking, the, you know, the, the endless tornado in your head where each time you have a thought, it gets pulled out of your head and replaced with another scary one over and over and over. And it's a, it's a terrible time when you first get diagnosed for most of us. But after about a month, this thought just arises or lands in my mind and it was, I wasn't stricken with cancer. I was provided this opportunity. It's part of my life. And I'm either going to be alive while I'm alive or I'm going to cash in my chips and be hopeless and quit. And the fact that that happened to me when the diagnosis first started versus after, I take no responsibility for. All I do is say thank you, thank you, thank you for showing up in my head. And you know what's so funny about that? I have always said whether it be about my first marriage, whether it be about you know relationships that have ended, I have no regrets. It, I would not be here today with a fabulous husband, five children, if all the things that happened before. And yet, when it came to this damn cancer, I couldn't, I, I couldn't see past it. But now I can say, look where it brought me. My relationships are better. I truly, the only, I, I just, I, I, my goal in life now is to help survivors survive. Past survival, meaning don't just survive. You get to thrive. And when I found my voice, it even became, you know, I, I, on these, you know, Facebook support groups. So a couple probably about two months ago, a youngish man comes on to one of the prostate groups and Bert, his partner had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. They can't stop crying. They can't leave their homes. They, they, how are they going to survive tomorrow? And I used to hesitate before responding because I didn't want to be that person. Mm -hmm. I said, I, I cannot let this young man do this to himself and I said but what if you could believe that even with a prostate diagnosis that you don't even know what it is they don't know the staging you don't know what if you could believe that you're with the best doctors you can be with who are going to give you the best treatment but that you get to decide to spend this time enjoying your partner living life because Nobody promised us tomorrow, cancer or no cancer. My husband was hit by a car 24 years ago, broke his, spent a week in the hospital, lost his front teeth, broke his tib fib, mm. did not walk for nine months. No one promised me that that would happen and that he'd survive. So we have taken cancer and given it a power to stop us in our tracks. Right. But that's literally a power we've given it because we also have the evidence that we've got great science and great medicines. Are they awful medicine? Yes, there's no question. Right. And do we look forward to when the medicine is not what it is right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, however... And. I'm alive. I get to know that whenever it is that my day comes, and I hope it's a long time from now, I have loved my family fully. My 
grandchildren feel loved. I've made a difference. That's what cancer has given me, Bert. It's given me the opportunity to make a difference. And I have said, I don't care if all my coaching is free through, let's say, Colo Cancer Alliance. My goal is to help people see life even with cancer can be lived. But my God, if you've been given the opportunity to be cancer-free for any period of time, stop living in the cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it hurts. It, it, yeah, it doesn't. There's a difference between... the heartbreak and the tears that comes with the daily struggle of navigating a cancer diagnosis and the treatment. The difference between that and just being heartbroken all the time. And some people are like, well, I am feeling heartbroken all the time. Like, all right. So, you know, then we'll look at that. We'll unpack that. We'll look at what the, th what the thinking is behind that. What has you there? Because, I thought I was going to die the first time I got diagnosed because, you know, it's like, oh, God, I'm going to die. Finally got like, wait a second. If I'm going to die, I'm going to live my ass off while I'm alive. And what that meant, very much like what you said, was to be as loving and good to my family as I know how, to own when I'm being a jerk and to turn that around as rapidly as I know how. Folks say to me or ask me, you know, how did cancer change your life? I say, I'm still the same jerk I was in 2007, but I'm not, I don't stay there as long. I come around a whole lot quicker. And the reality is, you know, I think I'm much less of a jerk because I really got like the time and the practice of noticing my thinking and my behavior and, and not wanting to live a certain way. But, you know, I, st I, still, I still fall and I get back up, but I get back up a lot more quickly. Do you think, that it's that you were given the time or you took the time you actively took it decided did I say given how you want you did you said you were given the time to not be as big a jerk and to you know notice but you weren't given it because you had it all along yeah you just decided to take it yeah exactly and that's Thank a you. skill that's a learned active participation in our lives because you could have said, oh, it's just who I am. No. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's why I said it early on that I'd been through those courses and those programs. I'm well trained. I would say I'm highly trained at noticing my thinking. And because I'm human, I also don't see a whole lot. You can look away at whatever you want. You, mm -hmm. When you're driving down the road of life, you know, there's certain places you're just going around the rotary, ignoring the turn because <laughs> you just don't want to go there. But, yes. But I'm highly trained and I've spent years devoting myself to noticing my thinking. And again, I will say, and years devoting myself to not looking certain ways, but it's made a huge difference in how I experience my life. How when I wake up and my first thought is I'm a failure, I'm no good, I should be ashamed of myself. And then I get to the point in the morning when I go oh you again good morning here sit at the table have some breakfast one of a friend of mine he asked me he said 
does that part of you get a place at the table? And when he first yeah. asked me, I'm like, hell no. And I'm like, oh, yes, you do, because you're not going anywhere. That's what we call 50-50. Now, is 50-50, is that a coaching thing or a family thing? So, no, it's a coaching thing. It's that there's never going to be... Um, 90% happy and 10% difficult. It's just not how life works. Right. So 50-50, I guess, is just a, you know, a general... It's just a way of, 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 of saying, you go on a cruise, and look, it rained for two days. It, exactly. <laughs> you paid thousands of dollars to go to Hawaii, and uh, the volcano erupted. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't... So you can either be pissed that that happened, or you can say... Well, look, I'm still on vacation with the person I want to be on vacation with, and I, none of us made that volcano erupt, so really? why would I spend any time being pissed about it and ruin my own vacation? You know, we're so quick to believe ourselves that we either have to get rid of the hard thought altogether or that we have to dive into it. But it can just sit next to us until we are ready to say Ooh, this isn't feeling so good. Maybe I want to try something else. But you have to be willing to say this isn't working. What is, what's that saying? Uh, if you do something, you know, <laughs> a thousand times and it's not giving you the results you want, then that's insanity. Right. The they said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over Thank and not you. getting any... I can't think of it new either. Results. Yeah, new, <laughs> not res it's new not results. Yeah, new results. The two <laughs> of us like, will get it. <laughs> I used to say chemo brain. Now I just say, you know, I'm getting old. Uh, but, oh, you know, that was another thing, by the way. <laughs> I was hell bent on loving chemo brain. Yeah. I, you know what? Because, I, like, I had lost for a period of time, like, truly, some of my word retrieval. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like, oh, I better get comfortable with this. Instead of researching, how can I work at getting my word retrieval back? Because there are ways. I started playing word games. I started doing, you know, word puzzles that were forcing me to retreat, even if I had to look it up. But originally, I'm like, oh, this is just who, you know, who I am now. Hmm. Oh, they'll figure out what I'm saying. <laughs> Gosh, chemo brain. I remember at one point finally saying to my wife, let me rephrase finally acknowledged with her that I couldn't remember things. And it's so important when you get chemo brain, so many of us, you know, me leading the pack, when we would have a discussion and a disagreement about what we agreed to, I knew that I probably forgot, but I wanted to be right. I didn't want her to be right. You know, you, you, you gather evidence in a relationship that's not working well. Like, oh, well, look at all the things that you did. Like, and like, you know, and then there's, the, then, then I act like a jerk and now I'm ashamed and then I don't want her to be right that I forgot because then I have to look in the mirror the whole. And, and admit you forgot. It versus, it was so liberating when I said, you want to know what? I, I'm sure I forgot. I have no memory of saying that. I, I legitimately forgot my anniversary the year after <laughs> treatment. Now, I actually remembered it was the month in November, but had the actual d day wrong. And my husband's like, hmm. I said, what are you talking about? I said, it is absolutely November 13th. 
uh, he said, no, it's not. It's November 14th. I was so pissed at him. But you know what? It literally was gone out of my head. I just couldn't retrieve it. Yeah. But it was such a, you know, it was such a black mark on my actual being. <laughs> I made it mean so much until I just finally said, guys, I am really struggling here with my memory and my word retrieval. It's a thing. I felt like I was making it up. That's what was really going on. The same way I felt like I was making up some of my original symptoms because I'm not the person who was sick. I'm not the person who needed to go to a doctor. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It was really liberating when after my second, like I was talking about my first diagnosis, after my second diagnosis, I finally said to my former wife, when I would, she would remind me of something I said, I would say, she said, we agreed to it. I'd say, no, we didn't. She'd say, we did. And I'd say, okay, I guess we did. So I've since made other plans. So what do you want to do? Because you know, it gave her, it allowed her to be frustrated with the fact that I forgot for the billionth time, but it allowed the relationship to move forward because I was finally taking responsibility for the fact that, look, chemo has affected my memory. It really has. And when I can just say, oh, yeah, I forgot. I don't, instead of hanging on to it and wanting to be right and not wanting to, why do I want to be right? Why was being right so important? Because I was trying to push away the belief that, you know, that I'm broken, that there's something wrong with me, that I'm not good enough. It's like, um, you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you and you are good enough. You just don't have a good memory because you did chemo. It's, it's all the thinking. You and I. It's you, literally that simple. This podcast could be twelve hours long with you and <laughs> you and me just had doing this, just playing with the. Uh, but the, doesn't that tell you something, Bert? Yeah. To me, it says that this is so important. It's everything. It, because if we're feeling it and we're telling diff- similar cancers but different, how many other people are out there still wondering? What, what's wrong with me? Why am I so angry? Why am I, you know, I, this is just my life now. Because there is a terrible disconnect between your end of treatment and real life. Yes, I saw my doctor once a month. Yes, you saw yours. Did they ever say, are you showering every day? Are you getting out of bed? Did you take a walk today? Are you engaging with your children? <laughs> mm. The answer would have been if anybody asked me, no. No one even asked. You're cancer-free now. Go live your life. Okay, how shall I do that? Right. You're cancer-free. Somebody tell me how to do it. Right, and that's why you became the coach you are. That's why I became the coach I am. That's why this podcast exists. Because sadly, Leslie, between you, me, and every other coach I can get on this show, I mean... Sadly, we're not competing with each other. There are so many people who need our support, who need a coach to navigate this because we don't have a powerful relationship to our thinking already as a culture, if I may be so bold. We don't. As a human. And then bring in cancer. You know, the purpose of this podcast 
is to have as many people, someone's going to hear, someone's listening to you and me right now, and they're going, oh my gosh, I want to have say over how I respond to my thinking. No one told me this. You know, how does, what do we communicate? You know, by modeling, my parents, your parents, our friends, all saying, you hurt my feelings, you did this, you did that, versus wait, I get to have some say? In everything. And post-treatment, the woman that I mentioned on Instagram, who I just messaged two days ago, she had a beautiful post, a video about it's like you're lost at sea. The ship became untethered. And you're out there, you know, untethered by they disconnected the chemo. You rang the bell and you walked away. And now it's crickets. crickets. You've had people caring for you every day, every week, constantly checking in this whole team. And for me, and I'm wondering if it was the same for you, took a lot of work, a lot of reflection, and it took a lot of courage to allow myself to be cared for. When they asked me, how are you doing, to honestly tell them and to be vulnerable. So I opened myself up. I'm vulnerable. I'm being cared for. I'm allowing the support in. I'm feeling it. It's becoming a part of how I navigate this. And then treatment's over and I'm on my own and there's no one there. We had this community relationship that was keeping me alive, was keeping me emotionally supported, was having me feel like I had, you know, surround, a, a web was holding me up. And then they just cut Safety. the lines. And, and now it's gone. And it's me. And I don't know how to do this. You know, my husband, without my ever asking, every Monday, took off the whole day, would pack our stuff, take me to treatment. He would sit there for the about four or five hours, come home, take care of treatment ends. That first Monday, I'm like, uh, I'm by myself. <laughs> what am I supposed to do today? Like, I didn't even know how to start. I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing my, you know, in those six months, I wasn't doing laundry. I wasn't doing the grocery shopping. I, I, sometimes I did do some, but not much. I did not know literally how to start scheduling my day again. And I felt very much untethered. And the problem is I also, you're right. Cause if they had said to me, how are you doing? I probably would have said fine. Mm-hmm. Cause for me, always, it's been a weakness it, to say. At least initially, I'm fine. Yeah, but at some point, <laughs> at some point, somebody should have, you know, taken a look and like, I'm not quite sure you really, but I would have been angry if they'd said something. Right. We train our family and friends and loved ones what conversations to not have with us. So, yeah, somebody should ask Bert if he's okay. Dude, I'm not doing it. You know how he gets, like that whole thing. Oh, you bet. I mean, maybe five or six years ago, my sister once said to me, we're having a phone conversation. She said, can we have a code word when the conversation gets like really unpleasant and we're, you know, if I feel like you're locking your heels in and you're not willing to give, can we have a code word? I thought about it. Maybe it was more than five years ago. But I said, I don't have the emotional maturity 
to receive that when if you say it. She was like, whoa. I'm like, what? She goes, I can't believe you just said that. And within six months to a year, we didn't even need a code word because she could just say, hey, you're being, I'm noticing how you're communicating. I'll be like, yeah, I'm really pissed off. And she's like, about what? I, go, I have no idea. But I'm clearly not. And that's real. Right. It's like. Because we also like to say to those people who would, might want to help us, you don't know what we're going through. Don't tell me I should be feeling better. You haven't had chemo for six months where they've been pumping you for three days. Don't tell me I should be feeling better. We are committed <laughs> to feeling like crap and making sure nobody takes that away from us. Until we're not. Until it just the until it's harder to sit in your own crap than do the hard work to feel better. That's when people say, This isn't working anymore. I feel too bad. When it comes to And I'm not even talking about deep depression. Because I was depressed, but I was not in a you know clinical deep de- I was just a miserable bitch. I mean really that's what it comes down to. I was enjoying my misery. It gave me permission. I gave myself permission with my cancer and my end of treatment to just be miserable until in my very chest and being, I'm like, do I really want my kids' friends to come home again and see me sitting on the couch? I apologized to those kids after. Wow. I said, you guys must have thought it was really strange when you'd come home with Jordan and I'd still be sitting in the same spot on the couch. I'm like, no, 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 no. And they were young. But the truth is, Bert, it was a little strange. You handed them the opportunity to, to, to just kind of look, plant that seed in their mind. For them to, maybe they didn't notice they were younger, but then they'll get older and they'll be like, oh, and they'll see it somewhere. Look at that person on the couch. You know, we try to outdo each other with our misery. Uh, when I was younger, you know, you'd talk about, oh, you were hungover? Oh, you should have seen me. I was puking on my own shoes. Oh, yeah? You should have seen me. I was in the hospital. It's like, what is this? We're competing to be the most miserable person. You know, oh, smell this. It smells disgusting. Oh, that's horrible. Like, what do we... Um, and then, and then you know, we, we, we uh, get older and, you know, oh, you had a bad day. You should have seen my day. Oh, that day? Oh, my uncle had a day. It's like, what do we... It, it's, it, it's so a part of the culture. And then you say to yourself, huh, maybe I want to have a conversation about something else. Maybe I, you know... Maybe I want to recognize that, not maybe, you know, there came a point where, for instance, you know, there came a point where I stopped wanting to outdo people with my suffering because my suffering was too painful to tolerate. Like a person who says, I can't keep eating this way. I can't keep putting off exercise. I can't keep drinking. I can't keep smoking. I can't keep doing whatever I'm doing because it's worse. What am I trying to say? It's just, it, gets, it, becomes, it becomes too much until you finally... It feels worse than the feeling bad about trying to fix it. Yeah. The, yeah. And, and, that, that's, and I think that's one of the things I love about coaching so much. It gives the person being coached if the coach can hold space well. They just get to tell their story. 
no judgment, no one-upmanship, no, oh, you know, I've been there, I know how you feel. No, you just get to tell your story. I'm just going to listen. And most people never get that. Because unless you know what it means to be an active listener, you don't know how. And it takes practice. But once you can give the gift of active listening, it can be life-changing for the person who gets to be listened to. And so that's why when people say, oh, you know, just, you know, therapy, we're not talking about fixing a person. Right. We're talking about giving a person the opportunity to fix themselves, to help themselves by hearing their story. No matter where that story takes them. And I will, as you will, help them see it is a story. But right now they get to hold on to it and they get to believe it till they're ready to believe something else. Yeah, one of the most powerful experiences when I'm coaching someone or when I'm working with a coach, I tell them what's going on for me. They recreate after they're quietly just listening, letting me speak. Then they recreate what I said for them. And I go, oh my, whoa, I just said that? Like when you caught the word that I used... I was, I don't remember. You said I, it, it gave me. It gave me versus I created. You get to notice it's way more powerful than just hearing a word I used. You get to, oh, wow, that's my perspective. Huh. Okay. And then we begin the work, right? Then I give my standard question. Is it true? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I write it to myself. Every day, when I'm beating myself up, is it true? And when I start with a client who is willing to journal, people, when they start to journal, think it is literally licensed to just say all the crap about themselves. My first prompt will be, can you just write all the fabulous things you have done, accomplished, all for yourself. Not with the ands, but so. I had a woman who, I'm talking like super higher education, you know, could not see those accomplishments. Because she had told herself for so long she wasn't worthy. Well, I didn't do the work. Her professors didn't do the work and yet she just wouldn't give it to herself yeah and when they do that first prompt they're like oh my god <laughs> i've actually done some stuff mm-hmm. yeah and, how's that feel yeah and that can provide some awareness and some curiosity about okay then why do i think the way i think Huh, well, what's that all about? And I'm a big believer in in rewriting the story, not to change the truth of it, but to change what it means. So, yeah, you might have had a crappy father or mother or uncle, but could it be 
that they were doing the best they could or they thought that that was, you know, what was going to get you to the next place in life. Doesn't mean it was right, but can you stop hating them for it and pull maybe one thing out that you learned fabulous from them? And it begins to tell a new story to them where they're like, oh, well, you know, maybe that's just all they knew because that's how they were raised. Yeah, when I got that my parents did the best they could and the best they could was not the best. And in some areas they excelled and in some areas they didn't. When I got that my parents were human and what's more important, when I got that my expectation of them was what was keeping me from having a relationship with them, I got to actually get to know my parents. My dad was, you know, he was kind of already on the way out, but I got to know my step-parents and my mom and discover who these people were. Because you were willing to believe that it didn't, doesn't have to have a hold on you. And when someone does something to us that's absolutely not okay, Are thinking about. I'm just going to keep it vague because it's so relevant. You know, it's so specific to the individual. But our thinking is the barrier. You know, when I Leslie, I'm just deciding if I want to say I've shared this more than <laughs> once on the podcast, but it just it just kind of it shifts the energy. When someone does something to me that's not okay, you know, there comes a point when I get to decide, do I want to give this experience say over how I'm going to live my life? Like you get diagnosed with cancer, no one's going to argue with you and tell you that what's happening is not okay. No one's going to tell you you don't have reason to be upset. You can be angry, you can be sad, you can be heartbroken, whatever it is, but the thinking that we have about our experience is the barrier. We can be heartbroken, we can... I mean, for me, what it was, was, you know, turning to myself and recognizing that what I believed about myself, so, you know, childhood trauma, and then I believed something about me I should have fought back I should have protected myself should should and then I spend my life believing well I'm a loser I'm pitiful we should ourselves to misery we Bert. should ourselves to misery I am pitiful I should have done better and so much of the work I do with clients is when they I'm sure we're talking about navigating cancer but it so frequently turns to their relationship to themselves how many times does a does a client in their own work eventually turn to themselves and see how little compassion they have for themselves for the experience that they've been through because they've been shooting all over themselves yep when i softened to myself i started softening to the world we have compassion for ourselves and we start having compassion for other people it changed the world that i live in and you know what else I learned? 
if I like my reason, let's, so I happen to have spent a lot of my, <laughs> I was a bit, I was a bridge burner. Mm. I was a hothead. I was quick with the emails. The, I mean, scathing. Mm. <laughs> I once had a friend who's like, uh, yeah, you're going to have to write in the subject if it's safe to open or not. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> so I burnt, you know, a number of bridges. But what I've learned now is I still get to decide if I don't want somebody actively in my life. I just want to like my reasons. I don't want to do it from a place of anger. I don't want to do it from a place of, you know, quick on that email trigger. I want to do it because that person does not give me thoughts of joy and support. And I don't have to make it an ugly, you know, Mom, I can just not have that person be part of my life quietly. Beautiful, yeah. Who they are is not unique to you. When I'm not operating from my higher self, when I'm just operating at a low frequency, I'll do that with anybody who is engaged with me. It's not about them. And when a person engages that way with me, it's not about me. It's not, I don't need to get offended and, 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 and appalled by their behavior. That was a word I really like to throw in there. I'm appalled. I was appalled all the time. Right. And then I'm like, how dare you? Yeah, how dare they? How dare they be a human being? It's like, or perhaps I can just get that they are who they are. I don't need to take it personally. And it doesn't have to mean anything about me. Because it doesn't mean anything about you. They'll do it with everyone. And you were just there and, you know. We're just there willing to keep that narrative going. But why? It's so much more peaceful to say, this relationship isn't serving me. It doesn't feel good in my day to day. So, you know, what? when I see the person, I can be cordial. I can, how are you doing? I don't have to <laughs> keep cutting people out. Like, in hindsight, it was, like, wasn't a very good attribute. It was very hostile. <laughs> but I can have the same result and just have it feel good, if that's what I decide I want to do. Minus the burnt bridge, yeah. You bet. Yeah, I love it. I want to bring it back. Uh, you spoke about telling your children, and I always find that to be such a valuable conversation for other people who are going through it listening right now and wondering how they're going to tell their children. So I will tell you, I've always been an honest parent. I don't believe in giving information I'm not sure of, but I do believe what we know is what should be shared on a level that is proper for whatever age. Because when they think we're keeping something, when they think we are not telling the truth, their little active imaginations basically have us dead. Again, and I'm also a very straight shooter. <laughs> I really don't, I, I, I've always been, you know, very straightforward, even more so now. They truly envision, their, they start to see and panic about their life without us. But if we would just tell them the truth, even if that truth is, I don't know. 
I don't know because I haven't started my treatment. I don't know how I'm going to feel. We have to see if the treatment's going to work. But I will be honest with you the whole way. Because with that honesty, even if, God forbid, there is an end of life coming, they get the respect and the consideration of being part of it. Amen. It is an old-fashioned, outdated parenting practice of keeping secrets that will devastate our children. Yeah, I've heard many people upset that they weren't given the opportunity to grieve with the person while they were still alive. Why was this Or to say goodbye. Or to say goodbye. Where's the closure that, uh, that, here's the thing. Why do we think when an adult doesn't get that closure or that opportunity to grieve, that that's so, so sad. Look, you know, the, the adults, so they didn't get to say goodbye to their 80-something-year-old parent. How, take a step back and think how the small children or the teenagers or the young adults who are starting their... They, I truly believe it's their right to have as much information to give them the opportunity to process it. It doesn't have to be scary. You don't have to tell them everything's scary. And I, I think that young people have a much easier time. They have far less baggage attached to their human experience. It's the adults, we're the ones that that, that bring everything to it. It's, uh, I agree with you 100%. Uh, having the opportunity to be with the person with whatever they're facing. We told my stepson, he was nine, he said, are you going to die? I said, some people die from cancer, and I don't think I'm going to. That provided him, you know, an accurate assessment. He could actually be with that. You know, there was n I wasn't hiding anything. It's, you know, and, and I felt that it was important to notice when I was living inside of a place of fear and anxiety. Did I not make that a part of his life? Because it's not true. It's like you said. There's nothing true about it. I'm, I'm stuck in this. I know I'm stuck in this. I don't want to share this with him. He doesn't have the, the cognitive ability to be a part of the conversation. I can turn to my wife. I can turn to my sister. Mm -hmm. I can say, like, or my buddy. You know, I can be like, okay, like, I'm really struggling this, with this right now. Or turn to my coach. I have a coach as well. Be like, okay. Um, Every good coach has a coach. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This one's got me by the throat. little help, please. <laughs> but kids, I find they do far better with the truth. My, my little guy, the second time I was diagnosed, he was, you know, almost five. And uh, when he was older, you know, I, I, I shared with him what I needed to share. I said, I've, you know, I have, I have cancer again, so I have to get treatment mm -hmm. again. He said, okay. Because what he observed was how I was being about it. How I was being about it 
was being honest. And what's honest is being with what's so. And what's so is I've been diagnosed and there's treatment and there's an uncertain outcome. But there's also evidence, since you've had cancer once and survived it, the evidence is there that he doesn't have to go to a place of, oh my God, I, you know, I've done it once. I can do it again. But I even took it one step further, which kind of like my husband, like, would like to say, you know, what, why, <laughs> why? <laughs> Where I've said to my children and him, if I die and when I die, I want you to do your proper mourning, be sad, and then continue living. I don't want you to be stuck in that how can I go on without my mom? Or, you know, life is so, life might be sad at times when we lose a parent, when we lose anybody. But I'm not sad because I'm not here. So be sad and then stop being sad because nothing would make me sadder than then not living to their absolute fullest potential don't stop living because i died if if that's your reason for not living then please stop doing that so let's have that conversation now i love you that conversation i'm the same way you know it's like live uh live your life while you're alive my son's mom and I, she initiated this, and I thought of, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, like absolutely." So, you know, we both spoke to the kids and said, "We got COVID going on. These people get it, and they die. They die alone in the hospital. I want you to know that you don't need to worry about me dying alone in the hospital. Like, I am intimately related." with my mortality. And if I'm going to be alone, I will be fine. I'm not afraid to die alone. Because here's the truth, Bert. Everybody's going to die. Bingo. You know, my grandmother died at 98, and she used to say, if I'm not 98, I'm dead, so I'll take 98. Yeah. Right. And I'm not suggesting that a person, someone else listening, may not, you know, they may not be okay with dying alone. And that's mm-hmm. fine too. I'm no authority Absolutely. on any of that. I just, but I, because it was true for me, I let my kids know. Yeah. I didn't want them, because you hear about it and it's heartbreaking to them. Like, there are so many people who died alone and we don't have to open yes. that whole thing up, but it's just what's yeah. so. I, yep. I wanted them to know, like, if that's me. I'm okay. Look, I've also been very clear with my family. If something ever happened to me that I was hooked up to whatever, do not leave me lingering there because it makes you feel better. Early on in my marriage, I had a surgery and I had to make my brother-in-law my health proxy because my father-in-law, who I adored, believed in taking any measure to save a person. Mm. And the thought that he would have convinced my husband 
to leave me as a, you know, on life support when I wasn't going to recover. And I said, and I, in the end, I found out years later, my husband was actually quite insulted. So I did, of course, apologize. But the thought of me, I don't want my kids to have to come for years. If it's my time, let it be my time peacefully. I just think that's a right I have. Yeah. We get to choose our life and we also do get to choose our death. There's a teacher by the name of Stephen Jenkinson. He's from Canada. And how he puts it is that he's in the death trade. He was on hospice. He was in charge of their biggest hospice program for years. And now he speaks and writes and even performs teaches about death and acknowledging that death is inevitable and there are times when palliative care is happening and people they don't see that what they're doing is not acknowledging that the person's going to pass and this is a very delicate topic, right? Because I really honor anyone's experience in life, but it resonated with me to recognize that, oh, yeah, we keep people on life support because we don't want them to go. People have someone do a round of chemo when really what they're doing is they're, maybe they're adding a few months to the person's life. And you know, I'm, again, I'm not telling a soul what to do, but mm -hmm. what it did is it brought to my attention the distinction between keeping the person alive and putting off the inevitable. And I have not been, I want to say this loud and clear, I have not been uh, in that position but one time. And that was when my father had a DNR and when he could no longer swallow because he had been going through Parkinson's syndrome, you know, dementia. And he couldn't swallow. DNR said, you know, no, no feeding tube. And so they gave him a light pain medication. And we kept his mouth wet and we sat with him. And uh, I was, I felt so blessed that my two siblings and my stepmom were all in the same boat. We were clear that any grief we had about him passing wasn't going to be channeled through in the form of a request that he stay alive. It's like he's he's going. And uh, so I'm going to tell this story because she is on. I'm not going to. She's on Facebook in the colon cancer group, so it's not like. But there's a, a young boy. He's 13. With stage four colon cancer. And the grandmother came on, who she's his caretaker, and uh, let the community know that they are taking him off medication. He cannot tolerate it anymore, and they as a family have decided to let him live to his fullest right now because nothing's going to change it. And people were, you know, I'm devastated for you. Oh, my God. And she came back on and said, do not be sad for me. This is a choice we're making as a family. And we are very comfortable with it. Thank you for your support, but do not feel bad for me. And I thought, God forbid ever I should be in a position like mm. that. 
I want to be able to be so selfless that I can see the reality in front of me and make a decision from a place of love and not one of, I need this person to survive. Because he's not going to. And he wants to survive pain-free and not a, a test case. Because unfortunately, apparently, the medications that work for adults don't have the same effect for children. Oh, wow. But this, the strength and obviously Bert thought work that she probably doesn't even know she has allows her to come at this from love. You're coming from two places. You're coming from love or you're coming from fear. And that, when I became, not a stepfather, but when I became a father, of, you know, I had a child from birth, I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this is what I'm feeling right now isn't love, it's fear. I'm terrified for my terror. <laughs> yes. Abject terror. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it's, it's real and it's there. And it's interesting, Leslie, I keep political and social stuff off this podcast. And please know, like most people, there are topics that are very dear to my heart. But I keep it off of this because we're talking about navigating a cancer diagnosis. And if you want to split the listenership in half, all I have to do is say one political thing and I'm done. Absolutely. <clears throat> and, and that doesn't bring us together. That separates us. And interestingly enough, I'm listening to our conversation. I'm actually feeling a bit, uh, maybe a bit anxious, a bit uncertain because we're talking about one of the most taboo topics that there are, that's death. And most of us, I haven't met a cancer survivor yet who is, who hasn't have the, <coughs> excuse me, I haven't met a person yet who's been diagnosed whose illusion of mortality has not been shattered. When you really get like, tomorrow's promise to no one. And yet I believe even in these circles, you know, speaking of death is like, you know, why are you talking about that? Let's talk about happiness. Let's talk about life. And for me, death is, I keep close to my heart. I always remember that tomorrow is not promised to me. I may have a recurrence tomorrow. You know, and people say, oh, you know, we can all get hit by a car. <clears throat> and I have a friend, she's passed now and she had cancer as well. That's how we met. And we would both laugh and be like, yeah, where I live, the cars are doing like 90 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone and there's a lot of them. So like, yeah, we can all get hit by a car, but it's different for us. The reality is it's, it's uh, I feel a bit anxious talking about, about death because I imagine there are listeners who are just like, whoa, no, not, and I, you know. I imagine you're right. And, you know, but here's the thing. If I believe that I always try to come from a place of reality and honesty. I don't really want death to be taboo. Because then we make, then we make it seem like um, uh, a thing that doesn't really happen 
every day, day in and out. Like, there's no mystery around it. To people, it's literally happening all around to us. To people of all ages all around the world, it's happening. So why are we pretending it's not? We romanticize death. We want, okay, when I die, I'm going to be old. Everyone's going to be sitting around me holding my hand. I'm not going to be in pain, and I'm going to take my last breath, and it's going to be beautiful. Like, I hope so. I hope so. We all hope so. I used to go to death cafes, which were monthly meetings for people who wanted to talk about death <laughs> because death is taboo in this culture. It, it. So I went there. <clears throat> my throat, I've, you know, everyone listening, I'm cl clearing my throat like a million times. <laughs> I'll probably edit this part out too. I would go to these death cafes so we could just talk about death and. How'd you even find them? Uh, someone told me about it. <laughs> it's on Facebook. If you go to. I might have to. <clears throat> if you go to on Facebook and do death cafe, you can find a local chapter where they meet and they talk about death and I really enjoyed it and then I got what there was to get from it it was beautiful actually my mom wanted to go to one and we broke off into groups and there was maybe six of us and my mom shared her experience of how her middle child was diagnosed with cancer and it was overwhelming for her and she wasn't able to be the person she wanted to be because she was so scared and I'm sitting there listening to her say that I knew that. It was not, it was, this wasn't news to me. But I didn't know that she was able to articulate it and had language for it. <clears throat> and uh, it may have been the last one I went to. It was just, it was, it was, who knew why I was going? But I wanted, to, I wanted to talk with people. I wanted to be in conversation about death. I wanted to, it's important for me to connect with others who weren't hiding from a conversation about uh, people who saw that this is not something we need to run from. It's heartbreaking, devastating, and 100% part of life. What's so amazing to me is because I'm sure, again, some of your listeners will say, oh my God, his mom said that in front of him? And I'm thinking... God, she's lucky that she had that opportunity to feel safe to share that right in front of you. Mm -hmm. How much more human did that feel for you? My mom's a pretty incredible person. I mean, I got, I got goosebumps because so many people would have gone with the thought, oh, I can't, it's going to hurt his feelings or it's going to make him feel bad that he had cancer. You had cancer, <laughs> you're her middle child, and it was devastating, and she shared that. And, like, that she even felt safe to say to you, I want to go with you. That's lucky. Yeah. But it comes from her being able to be honest. So when we stop thinking that honesty has to be too much information or too hard to handle... It's not true. It gives every person the opportunity to take what they need or not take what they need. Because you could have said, mm, you know, mom, I'm going to give you the information. You can go. I am not really sure I want to go with you. And that would have been okay too. But she knew she could ask you and nothing bad was going to happen. 
literally how lucky is that? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful moment for me and I was grateful for it. And, uh, you know. So why do we have to make that taboo? Yeah. And think of the weight it took off her shoulders to finally be able to say it. Like going back to my doctor, if he just could have looked at me and said, oh, Mr. Shola. Dude, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I messed up, man. Oh, well, he could sue you. And if you say you're sorry, it's like, well, okay, we're such a litigious society. You know, it's out of control. To the point that a doctor can't apologize because he's afraid of getting sued. His humanity is now, like, locked off, unavailable. Because he can't look a person in the eye and say, dude, I'm sorry, man. Like, that's not okay with me, you know? Because you know what? He actually might have felt better if he had just oh. apologized. He didn't have to beat himself up. He didn't have to live with it. He got to say, I'm sorry, but chose not to. It's just, there is a level of insanity what we put ourselves through when we are so convinced of this worst case scenario that might not even exist. Yeah, and the shame that we carry around. So I have apologized <laughs> to countless people getting on the phone, calling people from years ago, saying to a friend of mine, Hey, when you and your boyfriend broke up, we were all like in our, you know, late teens, early twenties. You know how I started acting differently and would look away when you looked me in the eye. She's like, yeah, like, you know, we were guys, and so, you know, we culturally were told you stay with the guys, but you knew I adored you as a friend. And I just want you to know that uh, I didn't feel any differently about you. I just didn't know how to deal with it. And I made a choice I wish I didn't make. Like, it was an uncomfortable conversation, I think, for both of us. But it addressed the truth, and it allowed us now. Now we're great friends. Because guess what? And this is what I keep going back to. So it was an uncomfortable conversation... But it was equally as uncomfortable sitting with the thought that you wanted to apologize, that you felt you had not shown up in the way you wanted to. So now you've got two uncomfortable feelings. Not having the conversation would have just kept you feeling uncomfortable forever. Now you had the uncomfortable conversation and you're great friends. And you wonder what inspired that whole thing was when I was in that course and they said to us, you all live like... You're not going to die tomorrow. Y'all live like you're going to live forever. The reality is you don't know. And that person that you haven't found the capacity to apologize to or to just ask how they feel about that certain something, you're, you don't know that they're going to be alive tomorrow. Life is precious. Life is short. And life is 100% uncertain. How do you want to live your life? You know, I really got that life. I was living life like I was in the dress rehearsal. And those courses combined with cancer had me realize, like, oh, I'm going to live now. Hell, starting this podcast took me, like, oh, I'd forgotten. I was talking to my uh, coach. She reminded me. She was like, (laughs) she's like, dude. Okay, so my first uh, recording, Leslie, was in, uh, Leslie, excuse me. My first recording, Leslie, was in January of 2020, January 3rd. 
and I declared I was going to have the podcast in September of 2019. Between September of 2019 and January of 2020, she's like, you were so scared. You had no idea how you're going to do this until you got, yeah, you have no idea how you're going to do this. It's going to go as it goes. The very first conversation, I messed up the miking so bad. She messages me and said, I'm wondering if you'd be interested in having that conversation again because I don't feel good about it. I'm so nervous. I said, really? I've been wondering how I'm going to conjure up the courage to message you and say I messed up the miking, so we have to do it again. You know, and life synchronicities, how things, things work out so well. Yeah, like, I was afraid. had no idea how I was going to do it. And I did it because there's no dress rehearsal for life. I'm 51 years old. I'm like, what am I waiting for? <laughs> this is it, pal. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's something I'm still working on. You know, being a new coach, having a new business. It's scary. But you know what? Chances are the scarier it is, the more you should do it. Oh, my goodness. Every session <laughs> I have with a client, there's that little voice that goes, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm like, how you doing? Oh, surprise, surprise, yeah. you're here. It's like it's like the Broadway actor who throws up before every single performance. Every time I have a... I'm also a singer and songwriter, performer. And every time I do a show, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous, like I've never done it before. And there's certain things that we just are called to do in life. Like you said, if you're, if you're that worried about it if say it again what you said about how it's just like you know you're you're called to do it you're pulled to do it it's it's demanded of you the you mean the more frightened you are <laughs> i could easily say this is so scary it doesn't feel good i'm not doing it it doesn't matter if i went to school it doesn't matter if i'm a certified coach i'm not loving this but i'm the only one losing out well I actually do think those that I help would be losing out as well. But I feel it so deeply and terrifyingly because I don't want to screw up. I don't want to, you know, give misinformation. I want to do it well, but I know I want to do it. So my job is to figure out how am I going to do that? I, you know, I always say, I didn't know how to get married. I didn't know how to be a mom. But I didn't let it stop me. I didn't know how to drive a car. If we let our fear stop us every time, we would never as human beings evolve. Right. When I was a new coach, I was like, there's so many other coaches out there that are better than me. And then someone said to me, yeah, and there are tons of people who aren't where those coaches are and will do great working with you. And they did. And, you know, People would also say to me, you're going to draw to yourself the clients that are a match for you. And, you know, and those who need us will find yeah, us. Yeah. And, and the conversations and the, and the sessions I've had with people are extraordinary. And uh, again, just learning that, you know, for whatever person is doing in life, the fear, you, know, you want to do something, you love it, you want to do that so much. And then you get afraid. It's like, yeah, why are you afraid? I mean, the, the fear is just there she, she's looking at me there's something i'm 
you're afraid because you might fail. Right. So what? Right. What's going to happen? What's the worst thing that can happen if you fail? You get up and do it again? I'm pretty sure that's what we've done every single day. Yeah. Most of our lives. We just don't recognize it because some of it is just expected. You trip, you stand up. It's no different. Yeah, I've had almost 40 podcast interviews now. And trust me, I learn a lot. I just listened to an episode a couple of episodes ago, and I'm like, ooh, why didn't I bring that up? Why didn't I ask about that? You know, it's just because I'm getting better, discovering, making mistakes. Not even, they're not really mistakes. They just wasn't something you missed asked. opportunity. Something else caught my mind. You know, there's a whole, right. there's a whole. Uh, but maybe that thing that caught your opportunity, your, your train of thought helped somebody that the other train of thought might not have. Sure. I'm clear these podcasts make a difference in people's lives. So, you know what I mean? So it's just, but my whole point was, I am going to miss things. Or I may miss things. And that's because I'm human. And like, I will get better and better and better at this. And, you know, I'm happy to say that, you know, having been a coach for so long and being trained in listening and being trained in, just leave it at that. I bring tools and strengths to these conversations that are. That are so important. Yeah. That are so needed. And they are hard. And sometimes they're hard to listen to. I don't know if you've noticed, I don't like talking about what I'm good at. As you and I were talking about how we coach people, I kind of get quiet because it's not something that I don't, I don't, I don't like talking about uh, being good at coaching. I don't like talking about being good at podcasting. <laughs> um, I want to just do I, it. I, I, know wanna... you're I know you're good at podcasting. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you're good at coaching. Yeah, I could tell that about you as well, by the way. I have noticed that. I'm like, wow, she's, she's great. I even journaled this morning. I don't know why this feels so big, but oh my God, my heart's racing about this podcast. Because you have, I told you, first of all, I could listen to your voice all day. Oh, thank you. But you really have a very meaningful conversation in these. And, you know, of course, my old nasty brain is like, uh, what do you have to bring to it? Uh, right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, I've loved this conversation with you, Leslie. This is so great. We're at, we're at two and a half hours. Oh, are we? Yeah. <laughs> I should check my phone battery. Yeah. And here's the thing. It's like, I'm okay with people who say there's no way I'm listening to a two and a half hour podcast and I get it and those folks aren't for me but I know yes. there are exactly just like our clients right just like our friends just like everything yes. in life it's I'm like, not everybody's cup of tea I worked with a practitioner who the way she advertised herself I'm like what like what are you how could oh my gosh you say that to the world She's like, look, I'm working with my people. And if somebody reads my website and says, what is she talking about? She's like, good. Because I want to work with my tribe, with my people. And this podcast, as many people have told me since it started, 
you know, it's, yeah, we're talking about cancer, but we're talking about profoundly difficult circumstances and the intimate aspects of it that we rarely get an opportunity to speak about. People rarely get an opportunity to hear about. Ah, and yes. with our two and a half hour episode, it's very likely that the listener is going to listen to it in five or six sittings or more. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, I listen to podcasts when I'm making my breakfast. I was listening to the one before we turned this on. And I'm like 37 minutes in. It'll probably be next week before I finish it because I'm also listening to mm-hmm. two books and listen to them all in pieces. And that's how folks are going to listen to this because they're interested in a certain kind of conversation. And there's other podcasts out there that are shorter that I'm sure people enjoy because they're providing a different kind of conversation. You do what you love. You do what speaks to you. What makes me nervous? What makes me scared? Go that way. My spiritual teacher, her name's Amoda Ma. And what I learned from her was that the things that I want to do, that fear that arises, that is love calling me in that direction. That is God. That's a universe. Whatever language you want to use, calling you in that direction. And we feel it in our body and we say, oh, I'm afraid I shouldn't. We've somehow learned and believed that that fear is no, but that fear is actually a yes. That fear is like, come on, baby, I'm waiting for you. I want you to have the life be the most extraordinary, profound, beautiful expression of you. And the only way that can happen is if you do what you love. And I hear that as, oh, no, I should quit. Um, I, I hear that sometimes as, um, who are you kidding? <laughs> who are you kidding? Uh, have you lost your damn mind? Fraud. But then I think, right? oh, fraud. oh my God, fraud. All of it. Oh, fraud for sure. You know what? Fraud was a big one for me because <laughs> I sucked at survivorship for two years. I didn't do it well. And I sometimes think, well, <laughs> am I really qualified to help somebody through survivorship? Oh, hell yes. Because I sucked at it so badly and was willing to suck at it so badly i get it you're intimately related to it like a person who skated through it is not a person who skated through survivorship through post-treatment survivorship i'm thrilled for them but they're not going to be as valuable i mean they they could be different value different value yeah i mean they could say i did x y and z so Mm -hmm. not to diminish what they can bring to the world because we're thrilled that no because the person who's maybe peripherally struggling or hasn't had a big you know traumatic feeling over the they might benefit from that people who have had a more trauma-induced survivorship will benefit more from this because they'll relate to it as opposed to the person who's like, yeah, well, this kind of sucked, but, you know, I'm okay. Which, lucky then. And you have the ability to have space, to hold space for them and have compassion in a way that's going to be delivered in how you be with them. That's going to give them the ability to have compassion for themselves for where they are. I should be in a different place. I should be feeling better. I should be taking action and then there's you as their coach who, who, through listening and recreating, can, can gently invite them to turn back to themselves and put those shoulds down and actually be where they are. Like, 
because people must stop shooting all over themselves. They should, shouldn't they? It's, they should. <laughs> they, absolutely, they should absolutely stop shooting. You have because it just doesn't bring anything. You have an intimate relationship with post-treatment struggle, and you can relate to a person in a way that someone who hasn't been there can't. I want to learn from a person who has failed miserably then succeeded. Yes. Because yes. they have way more to offer me in, when I am in a struggle in my life. You bet. So you... And you know what? I'm proud of my struggle. It brought me to a great place. Yeah. I love where it brought you. Brought you here on the show. <laughs> Which I've loved. Thank you. So you are how many years out from treatment? I finished treatment March of 2018, so three years. March of 2018. Three plus. So you're three years out, and you spent a couple of years being really stuck. Yeah, so I spent from March. It wasn't until about, it wasn't actually, believe it or not, till COVID hit, where I looked at my husband and said, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I'm already neck deep, and now there's COVID. <laughs> I, I said, I, 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 I can't... <laughs> I'm never, I'm never going to get out of this if I keep doing this. Because now I don't have to leave my house. Now I don't have to do anything. And then people started sending those damn memes about, you know, not fitting through the door. Oh, really? Oh, because everybody was eating during COVID. And I said, oh, no, I'm done. And day by day. So I just made the decision that I was going to listen to what I was being offered, not told to do, not should do. I was going to listen to what was being offered to me and make sense of it. And that's really all I did. I started journaling every day like it was a religion. Yeah. Looking at the journal, not just journaling words, like really di digging in, I started honoring myself. Because guess what? I'm alive now. Yeah. My joints didn't feel good. The weight had me. It was just compounding the misery. And you know what? I've changed my relationship with my humans. I've changed my relationship with food. I've changed my relationship with exercise. And I don't use any of it to beat myself up. Ever. Beautiful. It's all just a journey I'm on. Beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. And congratulations to you for being a two-time survivor. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real treat having you on here, I think. Uh, mm. I'm glad, glad we found each other because this is great. Me too. Have a beautiful day. Oh, wait. Me no, too. before oh. we go, tell everyone about your socials and your website so they know where to find you. So it is my, it's Coaching Beyond Cancer. Uh, which is what I am on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, my website is www.coachingbeyondcancer.com. And I can be, you can email me at leslie at coachingbeyondcancer.com. And that's your Instagram as well, you said, right? Yeah, it's just, yeah, Coaching Beyond Cancer is my Instagram. Beautiful. All right. I know how to get a hold of you. Thanks, Thank you so much. It's been an absolute treat getting to know you. Real, I, you too. I hope it's now the beginning of a 
great friendship. Me too. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, please go to our Patreon page at Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. See you all in the next episode, and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.